carefully address them and pause and meditate upon them, we discover that there are lessons for us to learn from these historical passages of Scripture. And as we have seen throughout this series that we've been studying in 1 Samuel, we find that God's plan and the things that he is doing is consistent throughout the Old Testament. I've titled my sermon this morning, the only, There's Only One Way to God. We're going to discover this morning that that was true in the Old Testament as well. That throughout Scripture, God has instructed us and informed us and presented to us that He is approachable, that we can have access to Him. But we cannot have access to God through our own machinations and our own expressions of faith. God is not a God that allows us to make up our own religion or to make up our own way to God. And so it is that we're going to learn from this experience of King Saul that was just as true in his day as it is in our day today. God allows us to approach him. That, that is, do you realize such an amazing principle and truth? That you this morning, no matter what state you are in your life, no matter what your experiences have been this week, through the blood of Jesus Christ, you have access to the very throne of God. And His grace. Let's begin this morning by kind of getting the setup. Because that's really what a good story does for us. It sort of gets us into the situation of what Saul was facing. Now you remember last week when Pastor Jason was sharing with us, Saul was out chasing and looking for donkeys, right? Not a real high stature in life. I find that almost humorous sometimes, the way God sort of plucks us out of things like that. You really got to think about that for a little bit. Saul and his, his uh, father's servant are out looking for the lost donkeys. Let that settle in for just a second. And then you'll recall that through God's providence and working with Samuel, Saul is anointed king. And then shortly from that highlight of his life, when they go looking for him, he's hiding. Kind of the rise to, and then the fall. And then they bring him together and he has some, some really great experiences. In fact, if you look at the history of what Israel was doing, it was, it was war constantly. Go back to Joshua and Judges and you'll find that they were surrounded by enemies, enemies that hated them, and they were constantly at war with those enemies. The Philistines, the Ammonites, the various tribes that lived all around them were constantly oppressing them. And so all throughout Joshua and Judges, we find that there are periods of time where leaders would rise up and try to bring out and fight against those enemies and try to, to get to the point where the people could live and they could grow crops and they could survive and raise their families. And then there would be a period of time where the enemies would crush back in upon them and it was a constant ebbing and flowing of the need of Israel to depend upon God to, to deliver them and he would raise up a leader and they'd be delivered and then there would be a time again where they would, would turn their back on him and so throughout that time that is the setup. We don't have an exact pinpoint of where chapter 13 falls in King Saul's life but we do know that it's very early in the reign 
somewhere right after he's been anointed. And we know that Samuel has given him instructions. Now you have to remember the way that this relationship works. Samuel was the priest, and the priest had very distinctive roles. This is a great Sunday to talk about this because it's July 4th. There's a little bit of politics in this. Saul was the king. As the role of king, he had the role to be able to lead the people to war and lead them as a political nation. But God reserved the, the role of priest to gain access to God. So the king was balanced by the role of the priest. And there was this kind of uh, combination of checks and balances in that relationship. God wanted to make sure that the king didn't become an autocratic leader and just kind of take the people off on their own way. And so he kept the priest in a very specific role. It was a very powerful role wherein the priest provided access to God and would deliver messages from God. That's the setup. It's in these uh, first verses then of 1 Samuel 13. I'd like to read for you verses 5 through 8. Because it's in these verses that we discover that Saul faces an overwhelming enemy. He's had a couple of victories. But it's in these uh, verses that we find that after those victories, in fact, in verse 3, Jonathan, uh, his son, went out and smote the garrisons of the Philistines. And in verse 5, though, things turn very quickly on Saul. And we read, Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, or in some texts, 3,000 chariots. We know it was a large number of chariots. 6,000 horsemen. And people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. They came up and camped in Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Not exactly the position you'd like to be in as the leader of the army. As the people that were gathered together with Saul looked out around him, they realized we are outnumbered, hugely outnumbered. We're going to get wiped out. And so they start scattering and they're hiding themselves in the caves and in pits and they're, they're, they're leaving the countryside. And Saul is sitting there waiting for seven days for the priest Samuel to arrive. Now, long-standing tradition in Israel's commanders was that they would ask God's favor before they went to war, and God led them. But King Saul finds himself in an extremely difficult situation facing a superior enemy. I love the way it says they're up against the wall and they're hard-pressed. You're right. Because Saul only has a few thousand men at his disposal, and he's facing the Philistines who have sort of said, hey, wait a minute, what are these guys doing? And they've raised up this tremendous army and have gathered ready to wipe them out. Saul is facing that kind of odds. 
He faces a superior enemy. But he's also coming off great victories. Have you ever been in that situation in your life? You've had some great successes. Maybe you've just finished a special week on a super project at work, and you kind of come off of that. What happens right after you get done with that climax, that peak project you get done? You face a crash. The entire computer system wipes out. The hard disks are infected by a virus, and everything disappears. Maybe you've had tremendous business success in your own personal business. Things have been going well, and all of a sudden some things change. The economy hits, and your business crashes, and you face financial disaster. Maybe you're in a situation where you've been raising kids, and everything's been going along great, and then one of them comes up with a severe illness and suddenly you're up against the wall. What can I do? How can I help my child? Or maybe you're facing a disease yourself or cancer. You see, when God describes these people to us in the Bible, they're real people in real time and place and they're just like us. And they face the same kind of situations that we do. And Saul, although he is coming off a great victory against the Ammonites, and his son, his courageous son Jonathan, has gone out and led an invasion against the garrison of the Philistines, he suddenly finds himself facing something that is completely out of his hands to solve. You ever been there before? You know, when everything around us seems like we can handle it, we're not really hard-pressed, are we? When we're not really facing something that we can't control, we just sort of skate along or sort of ride it out. Things just kind of pass. Time goes on. But it's in those situations when we face an enemy that is superior to us that we really begin to find out what kind of people we really are. It's in these circumstances that our true character is tested, isn't it? We sang about this this morning in some of the songs that we were singing. It, I don't know if you realize, but some of those words that you were singing, you were ex expressing that even when you were in the fire, you were going to praise God. Even at the midnight hour, what is that a picture of? Well, that's when you're in the darkest time, when things are really coming down hard against you. It's in those times, are you still going to praise God? That's what you were singing this morning. And we sang the words of that hymn, I need thee every hour. You know, when we're not facing hard-pressed things, do we really need God every hour? Well, we do. But we don't really think so, do we? If everything's okay around us and we're not facing difficult circumstances, we tend to forget that we need God. Well, it's at those times that we tend to start thinking of how can I solve this, and that is what Saul does. Saul comes up with a solution to his problem. Saul comes up with a solution to his own problem. And his solution is disobedience. Now, that is not the way that we start out in the process, is it? We don't sit down and say, wow, I'm facing some real difficult circumstances. I think I'm going to disobey God. 
Anybody ever calculate it that way? <laughs> no, we don't do that, do we? What happens is we start looking at the situation that we face and we do exactly what King Saul does. And so as Saul comes up with a solution to his problem in chapter 13, verses 9 through 10, we read this. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet and to greet him. What's Saul doing here? Saul had been commanded by Samuel to wait. Wait for seven days. And I'll come. When we get hard-pressed and we're facing an enemy, it's hard to wait, isn't it? Has anybody ever prayed that prayer, Dear God, give me patience. Right now, I need it, Lord. Yesterday, it is the hardest thing to do when we are hard-pressed and we're facing difficulty to say, I will wait for God. I will let God's Word direct my paths. Because God's solutions don't always work out in our timing. Isn't that amazing? We would like to just sit back and say, here's the problem I face. Okay, God, I've got a solution for it. If you'll just deliver it for me, we'll be okay. Everything will be fine. So right now, here it is. Let's do it. Well, that's what Saul's facing. And his solution to his problem was to, let's just bypass Samuel. Let's just bypass the priest. Bring me the burnt offering. I'm going to do it. What ultimately is Saul doing there? Let me describe it to you. Saul is trying to gimmick God. He's trying to gimmick God. He's looked over the course of history and he's no doubt heard of all the battles that Joshua faced, that the judges faced throughout their history, and he knows that he wants God's favor, and he looks around and he sees everybody leaving, and so he says, I think what I need to do is sacrifice to convince all these guys to stick with me here. You know, if you go back throughout Scripture, though, you'll find out... Previous to this, there was a, a man named Balak, and he noticed how the Israelites fought and defended themselves, and he realized that they sort of were blessed by God, and so they'd have victories where it didn't seem like they should win, but they'd win. And so he goes and tries to get a prophet, Balaam, and he, he kind of looks at it this way. He thinks God can be gimmicked, and so he notices that Balaam, who's a prophet of God, when he blesses people, they, they succeed, and so he goes and gets him and says, what I want you to do is curse Israel. You remember this story? Balaam goes out and he meets with Balak and there's money offered and riches offered. And what I want you to do is instead of blessing them, I want you to curse them. And so he heads off to do this and God sends a very special messenger. My kids always loved this story when they were growing up because they thought it was really funny that God could use a donkey to tell a prophet to listen to him. Isn't that pretty odd? You know what I find the oddest about that story? Is that when the donkey starts talking to Balaam, he doesn't say like, Whoa, you're talking. He just carries on a conversation with him. And the donkey speaks to him. And essentially what the donkey delivers the message of is don't mess with God. He doesn't want you to curse them, so you can't curse them. 
recall just a few chapters earlier, even in, in this book, that the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, what did they do? They took the ark out like it was some sort of a mascot. Like if we show up with the ark, all the Israelites will rise up and go, Woohoo! our mascot is here, let's go out and fight. And they ended up losing miserably. Because God cannot be gimmicked. You can't mess with God and get Him to just sort of like superimpose His blessings on your life like He's some kind of a magic wand. When we face difficult situations, our genuine character often comes to the surface. Will we obey God and wait patiently for His solution to materialize? Or will we forge ahead in our own way? And that is really the test that comes when you're facing difficulties in your life. The nature of Saul's character comes to light in chapter 13. And it's not just a single experience with Saul, unfortunately. It continues throughout the course of his kingship. It's a repeated pattern of disobedience. Because Saul keeps thinking, I can outthink God. I see a problem, I'll solve it. And it's not God's way, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be better than God's way. It comes to a head, by the way, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, just a few chapters later, in verse 22, it says to obey is better than sacrifice. And what that little phrase means in Saul's life here is experience is sacrifice was the ritual, the religious ritual, the sort of being religious, sort of a false sacrificing. Because what Saul was doing in chapter 13 wasn't a true sacrifice. He wasn't really coming to God through the proper channels and saying, God, I want to get your approval. I want to find out if I'm obeying you. I want to find out if I'm going the right way. He was just trying to keep people from scattering. You know, we face this kind of a spiritual ritualism today. We face in our country, like at no other time in our 200-year history, religious pluralism that is just rampant among us. People who are going through all sorts of spiritual rituals that are not in the genuine path of God, that are not coming through the way that God said, through my son. I was listening to the news this week and saw an interview of a church in the West Michigan area. Their name used to be Christ Community Church, centered on Christ. And the reason that it hit the news was because their their church is removing the cross off of their building. They had come to determine that the cross was an offensive symbol. And uh, so they were interviewing the pastor, and he shared, well, we've, we've had a lot of people that have come to join us. We began attracting Buddhists and Jewish and Muslim and gays and spiritual but not religious. At that point in time, I tend to talk to my television set. drives my wife and my kids crazy. I said, now, now wait a minute. If the name of your church was Christ Community Church, how is it that you began to attract all these other people? And then I had another question. How does sexual behavior match with religious, religious, anyways, it's a whole nother subject. He said, we've attracted spiritual people that are not religious. And so the 
interviewer was asking him some questions, and, and he said, you know, the, the kind of questions, well, what do you do? Wouldn't that be your question? I, I've been in meetings at times where there are people of different religions that gather, and you kind of wonder exactly how do you get a Buddhist and a Hindu and a Muslim and a, a Jewish person, there's sort of certain mutually exclusive things about what you believe there. And so he said, well, we come together to be all that we can be. I thought, oh, that's like the Marines, isn't it? <laughs> we want to make a difference, he said, and we practice being human. I don't know if any of you had a problem being human this morning. I don't find even in the context of taking communion difficulty being human what I find difficult is being like Christ it seems like being human is something that is easy to me practicing becoming like Christ is something altogether different and so we face this kind of solution where people are trying to make up their own solutions because they find the solution to our problem that God gave us, Jesus Christ dying on a cross to be offensive. Well, back in the narrative of Saul in 1 Samuel 13, we find a third point this morning to this narrative, and that is the severity of God's response. I want you to look at verses 11 to 14, the severity of God's response. Because... God was not impressed with Saul's attempt to offer a sacrifice and to keep the people from scattering. He was not impressed by Saul's desire to gather uh, these people together in this religious process that he was masquerading. But in verses 11 through 14, Samuel arrives and he says, What have you done? Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. The kingdom is removed permanently from Saul's family and his descendants will not sit on the throne. You know, it's at this point in the narrative that we have to step back a second and ask ourselves a question. Do I trust God's judgment? I find this to be a very difficult thing in our society today. I've heard a lot of people over the years, they've expressed to me when I'm sharing with them about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they'll make a statement something like this, well, my God doesn't send anyone to hell. I think this is a point in time where we might look at a story like this and say, man, that seems harsh. That seems severe. I mean, after all, someone said to me one time, they used this phrase, you know, isn't it just about trying to be better with God? 
whatever it is that I'm doing, as long as I'm trying to get better with God, isn't that enough? You know the loving and gracious answer to that question? Is no, it's not. No, it's not. Because God has established for us that we have a problem. We have a severe problem and our refusal to follow God's prescribed solution for that problem brings a severe judgment. And God's judgment is appropriate. The punishment for Saul is appropriate because Saul usurped the role of the priest to lead God's people and showed disregard for the appropriate way to approach God. He was making up his own system. He's making up his own religion. God has from the very beginning been opposed to people that try to approach him on their own terms. There are examples that show that God does not allow us to make our own way into his presence. It's not like it should be a surprise to us. Beginning in the very beginning of Scripture, if you look even at Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they sinned, what was their solution to the problem? They sowed fig leaves. God came and found them in the garden and says, fig leaves are not appropriate. And he slays the animals because God said that when you sin, death will come. Well, death came to those animals. It wasn't long after that that Cain and Abel came before God. They had obviously been taught and were not given all the instruction that they had, but they knew that there was a process of being reminded of how sin causes death. And they came with their animals Slain and the blood was shed, but at some point Cain got a better idea and he decided, you know, it'd be uh, maybe a little less costly or maybe a little less bloody or something. He decides to just bring some produce from his garden instead of bringing the animals and, and slaying them. Another story happens in Leviticus chapter 10. This is when Nadab and Abihu, this is not one of those stories that's taught in Sunday school very often because Nadab and Abihu get consumed by fire. It was right at the setting up of the, uh, the uh, system of the priests and all that they were to do before God. And Nadab and Abihu, two young sons of, of Aaron, the first priest, it just says that they offered strange fire. If you go kind of study that and look at it real deeply in the Hebrew, it's, it's kind of like there were these incense to make images of things, and they decided to throw something on there that did something to kind of jazz it up a bit or bedazzle the people or create some kind of unique something and it wasn't what God had prescribed, and they were consumed by fire. You know what's the most interesting in that narrative? God instructs Moses to go tell Aaron, do not mourn for your sons. You're in the middle of priestly duty to come into my presence. As a father... That causes me to have to ask the question, do I respect God and His holiness that much? Do we take God that seriously? That it's our responsibility to know what God instructs us to do and that we obey and follow Him because He is that holy? 
finally we come to the fourth point this morning I'd like to share, and that is God's solution to our greatest problem. Within the context of this narrative, if Saul had just waited, Samuel would have come. He didn't do that. He didn't wait for God's solution. He misjudged the situation. He took things into his own hands. He looked around. He observed. He says, this is what I saw. The people were scattering. This is what I knew I needed. And so we went on our own path. We contend to do the same thing today. Our greatest problem is that we are enemies of God before we know Jesus Christ. We then become people with the message of reconciliation. But as we look around, we can face the temptation to say, that message doesn't strike real well in the 21st century. The cross is offensive. Men don't like to be told that you need a Savior. People don't like to be told you don't have the merit to approach God. People don't like to be told you're not good enough. And so we can look around us and say, maybe we ought to twist it just a little bit to make it a little easier to go down. But I would remind you this morning, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus is the way. It's what we've centered on in communion this morning. Jesus said in this chapter that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. God has given us a specific prescription and solution to the greatest problem that we have. And it's not the problem of being human. It's the problem of sin making us unacceptable to God. And so it is that God has given to us a way to come back into reconciliation with Him. I'd like to close with a passage from Hebrews. Maybe this will just stimulate your mind this morning because it's a rich passage. In Saul's story and the narrative there that we see, Samuel was the priest. Well, you and I have a priest, and it's an exciting message. It's an exciting realization that Jesus Christ not only came and shed His blood, but Jesus Christ was also the high priest offering that sacrifice. So that God had completely solved the problem. We didn't have a human priest. We don't have a priest that was also a sinner and needed to be cured. We had a priest, a high priest that was God's own son, and He was the sacrifice and the priest. And in Hebrews chapter 5, we read not only was He a, a priest, but he's an eternal priest. Verse 5 says, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, that's God the Father, You are my Son today, I have begotten you. Just as he also says in another passage, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. i tell you what, that's exciting. Because we face eternity and Jesus is eternal. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from the death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Being designated by God as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. 
What do we learn from this narrative today of Saul? Whatever you may be facing, will you trust the only way to God? Will you stand firm like the songs we sang earlier to praise God and to trust God even when you're in the fire, even at the midnight hour? Not just when life's going easy, but most especially when the solution that you think should come just doesn't come. Will you wait for God and obey Him? And particularly, will you stand firm and truthful to what we have celebrated this morning, remembering the death of Jesus Christ? No matter how offensive that message comes to all the community surrounding us, that you will say this is God's only way through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this morning we come before You and we thank You, Lord, that You have given to us the examples and the stories of people who have traveled this earth before us, that we might learn from their examples. Father, may we be a people who patiently wait for your solutions that we seek to obey you even in the face of terrible circumstances and trials, knowing that ultimately you will deliver us. And we will learn from the experience of Saul. He took things into his own hands tried to make his own path to you. Father, we don't want to be that way. Father, we want to be true to the testimonies that we sang in our songs earlier. That no matter what we're facing, we will praise you.